0: Welcome to Pharma Talk Radio Podcasts. I'm pleased to share a panel discussion from the 2022 Craco Conference on the topic of educating patients and non research physicians on navigating clinical research to improve access and patient satisfaction. For more information about the Craco Conference, our editorials, podcasts, and webinars, please visit cracoevent.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast.
1: Um, We'll go ahead and kick it off. Is there one of you that uh, would like to start with introductions?
2: Thank you. Uh, Robert Lowell. I've been in the patient recruitment space for about 12 years now, 13 in total with a couple of companies. Um, I actively participate in clinical research. I'm blessed at this time that they are healthy subject studies. As a formatting piece of this, we're going to ask every now and then that we're going to throw some questions out for you, and you stole my thunder with Josh. How many of you, by show of hands, have participated in, in a clinical research study? We very much want to know how you found out about it, who approached you, and how you decided what study it is that you ended up being in. We do want this to be interactive. You've seen 125 slides, there's no slides today. This, we're just gonna look for this to be a little bit more uh, interactive. Um, I've had the good fortune of participating in research and I've, I've been in the patient recruitment space for a bit. Um, and I'm also with Jennifer serving on the board of advisors for uh, Siscript the Center for the Information and Study of Clinical Trial Participation. They're based here in Boston, but just, again, out of show of hands, how many of you are familiar with Syscript? Ah, oh, music to my ears, so, so good to see that. Um, it is a pleasure speaking about something that is so deeply important to me, speaking on behalf of somebody who has conducted research and somebody who actively seeks research to participate in, uh, to be a part of this paradigm. I love the idea that I can talk about I with the pronoun I when I talk about clinical research because I think it changes your entire paradigm once you've been, once you've been a uh, participant in a study.
0: That's absolutely right. I'm looking at the audience and recognizing people I haven't seen in a couple of years. I can't remember what it was that kept us apart, but it's great to be here. Uh, Irfan Khan, I'm a cardiologist once upon a time. I'm Circuits founder and CEO, and, uh, and as Bob said... Uh, you know, I think it's good. Audience participation counts. Ra- raise your hand if you're interested in lunch in, in twenty minutes, right? Like, you know. So we'll try to stay on time and and, and walk through this. But you know, as uh, listen to Jennifer and Amanda's great talk too. We're at this kind of interesting nexus where there's enough people working the problem from enough different points of view for access. That this is really, this is the beginning, or I think, of that next phase. Like Craco, you know, Valerie. I think about the the early work in really getting this message out there and really helping the people who write the checks understand why there's value in this, and then helping the health system partners and the physician groups understand why they might take this on. I think we're past all that. I think in many conversations you have, people are more like, how does it work and when can I have it, that kind of thing. So this will be fun talking through kind of two of those key challenges related to uh, patients and doctors.
1: Excellent. Thank you. So um, uh, again, Laura Black, I serve as the Executive Director for Clinical Research at Sanford. So bringing the site side uh, to the conversation. So definitely excited to talk about this today. I I would agree with you. I think the why has been answered for many people. Now we have to figure out the what, where, how, all of those different things. And so um, look forward to kind of kicking the conversation off. Is there one of you that would like to go first with kind of where you see the vision?
2: Uh, One of my pet peeves is I used to spend in a past life about 10 or 12 hours a day in physician offices trying to gain that trust uh, to have people and have that relationship in advance. On a number of different studies that we've done, what has made such a significant impact on enrollment is those research sites that have pre-existing relationships. Like Dr. Deming said, it's not reaching out with an email and saying, do you want to participate in a trial? I know for a fact if I reached out to somebody with an email and said, hey, you want to send your patients over to us? It's just, it's going to fall flat. You have to have those pre-existing relationships. And every single presentation that took place this morning talked about not doing what's easy, but doing what's really hard, doing the right thing. And it takes a long time to develop these relationships in the communities and with your trusted physicians. I've actually had sponsors that said, we don't allow you to do any physician outreach. I'd be mean, like, why? Why would you even consider that as an SOP? And they're like, we don't have KPIs that demonstrate that it has any lift. And two, we just don't feel like you can have the bump that we're looking for. And that would drive me crazy. And so as I pass back off to Dr. Khan, I think one of the things that to me was such a pet peeve is this idea of not pulling in the physicians into as part of the conversation. And the fear was, and I, I personally believe it's a myth, this idea that that physician just simply didn't want to lose a revenue source.
0: Yeah, I think it's at the heart of this is that um, the conversation is elevated to the system level, and now change is kind of scalable. Um, so I think about the single physician practice doing research, and you know I've, we've we've had experiences with that. Uh, really putting research into single physician practices. Now we operate at hundred physician plus groups and, and health systems. And what's changed, I think, and, and, and part of this is that that the system has the power, the health system has the ability to break through that, that, that fear, that referral fear, essentially, that I'm going to lose my patient and they're not going to come back. And I think, I think there's enough um, IROs and, and similar type services that are sort of saying, well, we can also ensure that that doesn't happen. And so there's this kind of trust ecosystem that kind of has evolved painfully over five or six years that's let there be better conversations, different conversations. The opportunity is huge. I mean, we, we all know these numbers. I, I, I think... Um, you know if we if we would say conservatively five percent of physicians are either doing research or referring for research, there's a lot of opportunity. But unlocking that is really going to to come at the hardest part of the problem, which is that if you're thinking about the the kind of the what I think of as the landline infrastructure, and there's nothing wrong with it. we absolutely need landlines you know the the traditional sites and um, and academic medical centers you know if we're going to build other connectivity, cell towers out there in these other health systems that have the majority of patients, you know, the challenge there is going to be, how do you solve the problem the specific physician has? How do you change um, what they've been doing in a way that's value additive? And how do you, how do you because until we solve that problem at scale, the challenge is that the system deal doesn't really unlock value for the patients. They they can't access the trial if their doctor isn't interested in doing it. So that's I think that's the next big challenge as we kind of roll into this.
1: So when we were preparing for this conversation, we had a, a similar conversation about um, how do how do we help physicians and how do we get that infrastructure in place? And one of the pain points from a site level, and I'm not sure how many how many of you are from a site in the room. Okay, so you can probably all, um, I hope, if, you, if you're not dealing with this, let me know because I need to know what your, what your tactics are. But um, we're all dealing with out-migration of very experienced staff um, to pharma and CROs. And so when we're talking about setting up infrastructure, making sure that we have opportunities for patients, making sure we have opportunities for individuals who want to work in clinical research. I think we have to talk about the gorilla in the room, which is kind of the out-migration of our staff and really at the bedrock of the foundation of clinical research is the physician, the patient, and the clinical research coordinator.
0: We're looking at the largest exodus of physicians 30 to 55 years old in the history of medicine in the history of medicine. We, American medicine has never seen anything like this. Um, to the point where, um, I'm dating myself, but once upon a time applying for fellowship or, or, or residency and pointing out that you were interested in entrepreneurship was considered a positive. Now it's a death sentence for medical students who, who are applying because that's the last thing we're trying to do is build doctors who don't want to practice medicine. And so, so that's the challenge is that you have this, if we think about the investigator pool as it exists, those of you working in sites, I can describe your investigators. They're male. They're white and they're over 60. And they're thinking actively about retiring, asking themselves, why am I still doing this? And so that's the, you know, again, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. So I look at that and say that's the opportunity, though, with a different kind of engagement of these doctors with better value actually for them. You could change the entire um, Composition of the investigator base uh, in about 10 years. You know, and and really you could you could gender diversify it, you could racially diversify it, you could socioeconomically, where they're coming from, what's their understanding of social determinants of health, you can make all those changes. Uh, Not any one company, obviously. I'm talking about the people in this room and people working on the problem collectively. We all have an opportunity to change what the investigator base looks like just by being thoughtful about where we put in the energy and the resources and the efforts and stuff. Um, it's very clear. The data, the opportunity is huge, right? Patients tend to respond to doctors who look like them. You know. Um, um. Let's leave the whys out of it for now, but women get better health care when they're treated by female physicians. That is an answered question. It's been studied about 20 different times. It's always true. Black patients get better care from black physicians. This is an ongoing navel-gazing sort of moment in American history as we started, as doctors are trying to figure out why this is and what we can do about it. Well, one thing we can do is make more black physicians. That's a good idea. And the other thing we should do is figure out what's going wrong in our system and, and structurally solve for that. There's a similar opportunity in clinical research. If we're thoughtful about which investigators we create, we can really change what representation looks like. So it's a huge opportunity, right? Uh, yeah, it's a big challenge, right, with this, this, this um, aging pool of investigators and this huge exodus out of medicine by doctors who can do other things. And so the opportunity then becomes if we can identify doctors who actually want to be in the mix. The key to that is gonna be creating value for them. You know, how do we think about this as a value creating positive experience for doctors. And I think it's more than just saying, will you get paid to do it? You know, you get a dollar if you do medicine and you get a dollar twenty if you do research. That is going to convince the worst doctors out there to do research. The ones that are going to need the engagement are here's how you build a different kind of career for yourself and create new value for your patients.
2: Bob? I had a physician that recently said that they're going to monetize their database and they're going to make a shitload of money at a Bob Evans restaurant. And I went, what did you just say? He goes, yeah, we've got all these physicians. We've got this database of patients. We are gonna, we're going to monetize this database, and we're getting into cl- clinical research. I went, for the money? And he's like, yeah. I said, this is so painful to sit and, and listen to this. I can't eat. And I think that that concept is, is just so, so wrong. I think for me, you, we are... I'm, I'm the most glass half full right now because I survived the the explosion on the train yesterday in the subway. So <laughs> watching everyone dispense out of that subway was the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life on 9-11. So I'll continue with being positive. Right. For me, the challenge we have with Craco is most physicians think of Craco as a last resort. They'll talk about clinical research, but only if you're stage three, stage four. And so the conversation of talking about Treatment options and care options usually doesn't happen until it's really, really problematic. I, I, I really struggle with that. I'm
0: sorry. There are two evolving models that might tackle the pro- that might tackle this this situation, this opportunity. One is we're seeing more and more um, really interesting players that haven't really taken on research and some who haven't even taken on healthcare before getting involved. You know, uh, our, our, our local pharmacies at scale are saying what if we provided an opportunity to learn and hear about this, right? Between CDS and Walgreens, between what's happening in Walmart Health. I mean, this is a fascinating time to be in medicine, fascinating time to be in clinical research. Everybody with their own kind of opportunity to create positive change, everyone with their specific challenges based on what does the footprint look like and what can we really do. And the opportunity then is that, well, we could just employ a bunch of doctors and they can be principal investigators. That's a model and it's been been successful. And, And there may be, a batch of physicians who have gone through med school, who are out in training, and who've had trialist experience who don't want to be in classic medicine and they're available. That's still gonna be the minority, honestly, and it's not going to solve the the crushing need, right? I mean, the the data is there's a million patients missing from clinical trials right now, right? So. Not only are we missing the patients, the reason we're missing them is because we're missing the doctors who could actually talk to them about these things and probably the care teams right after physician burnout or actually maybe one rung up is, is nursing burnout, right? And our, our coordinator base is having the exact same problem, right, so, so these are real challenges. They are also real opportunities, but until they're approached from the idea of value, value to the physician, research is a value-creating experience, a value to the coordinators, explain to them why they should care about this and put this on their list, um, we're not, going to, we're not going to be able to fully realize the opportunity here. That's, that's, the, that's the opportunity. And I think And if CRECO is great at kind of you know, creating the sea change and kind of surfacing the ideas, this is the idea I'd send everybody home with, which is think about what any of us could do to change what the investigator experience looks like in clinical trials because they're the single fastest way to change who gets to hear about trials and who participates.
1: Yeah, I, um, I, one thing I would add to that when we were talking about workforce development for coordinators, and this is something that um, as a nurse pains me to say, but um, is also a reality I think we all have to face is that um, the clinical research coordinator of five years ago is not gonna be the clinical research coordinator five years from now. Um, we know that there's a nursing shortage. We're not going to be coming out of that anytime soon. Um, and we know that those nurses are needed at the bedside. They're needed at um, frontline care. And so at our institution, we've accepted that and really tried to figure out how can we develop uh, a workforce plan for non-nurses. So really thinking, to your point, um, Dr. Kahn, about how do we support physicians with very um, trained, competent, uh, um, detail-oriented, all of those things that go along with research coordinators, um, but that maybe don't have traditional clinical experience that we're used to. So I'm kind of curious what either of your thoughts are about that paradigm.
0: I'll,
2: I'll only say they have to learn 25 passwords and usernames. And once they have got that, we're
0: set. So assuming we get past that technical <laughs> challenge, although you know, I've been waiting for my jet pack and my universal password for about the same amount of time, um, I think that... Uh, that there's, there's two things happening. And, and so part of this is, and we'll just sort of speak transparently, you know, there are some great companies that have scaled up over the last five or six years. You know, um, it's a relatively small number of them who've worked on, operationalizing research into health systems. And they have a huge advantage because they can offer their teams, they can offer those nurses and those coordinators full-time work doing the thing they love most, the thing they're amazing at, right? So, So, I'm looking at Jennifer back in the room. I'm sure John was here a little earlier, right? Like, there are some great teams that have really solved for what does this look like at scale we and you know at circuit we have the same sort of opportunity to offer people a chance to take their expertise and focus on just that rather than the balance between mm-hmm. you know again as the investigator in a, in a large Catholic health system for many years right 50% clinical trials hundred percent operating is a tough balance to kind of get going and if you're offered as a coordinator hundred percent research all the time with a variety of projects different therapeutic areas career growth that's an attractive opportunity but if it comes at the expense of our existing trial infrastructure, what's been accomplished? We've you know, we've pulled out the pillars of the thing that's already working, however imperfectly. It's the challenge, and I, I loved listening to Jennifer talk about the scholarships and all the work that, that Amanda and Jennifer do to, to grow the ecosystem as we go. And I know John and Alago do the exact same thing, circuits oriented around these same ideas. How do we build new infrastructure while we create these spaces for this to happen? And what the health systems have the huge opportunity, Laura, I think is really exciting, is that, that as this evolves, this partnering idea that was the theme of the last talk, I think is going to be the theme of the next five years, which is that we can't all do it all, but we could all do it all together. And that's going to be, I think, part of where this all goes shortly.
2: I love the idea of the partnering, and we do it from a number of different ways. So even though I practice as a full service patient recruitment company, there has never been a campaign that we don't leverage third-party experts to help us. We leverage patient advocacy groups who, by the way, You don't have to go to DIA or SCOPE to realize or CRACO to realize they hate, patient advocacy groups in whole, hate when we only reach them or use them or leverage them when we're enrolling a trial. Again, go back to the pre-existing relationships and having a value proposition that is mutually beneficial, not just reaching out to them at a time when you need to run a trial. But I believe that that paradigm is really important. As humble as we are, we're as good as we are, I'm absolutely at our very best campaigns are when we're tapping into the assets of other people who are third-party experts who just are brilliant at doing what they do. And I think that that has made a big difference, just this idea of not being the sole provider of, of, of providing these services but working collaboratively with many, many of you that are in this room right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so... Um... The challenge, I think, I have a master's degree in public health, so I think a lot about policy systems, environments, how does all of this come together? And I think one of the challenges, because we have challenges, it seems consistently in clinical research, right? That's the why we all like clinical research, because we like a challenge. Um, One of the- And suffering. And what? Suffering. And (laughs) suffering, okay. (laughs) Some of us like suffering, too. Um, I think the challenge for a lot of the leaders and, and all of us in this room is to think about how to your point, Bob, and to your point, Dr. Khan, how do we do this together? And Dr. Bird said it this morning, right? We're gonna, we're gonna do this. We're gonna do it together. But how are we gonna do it together? And I think the most important thing, and and anyone who is. Um, you know, had coffee with me lately has heard me say this, we're not gonna get through this without each other. And so how are we gonna band together? Is it through policy? So formal policy, funding, we've seen the government do some amazing things through COVID that have expanded our ability within clinical research to do some phenomenal things. Uh, You know, the thought that we would FaceTime a patient and consent them in the ICU for a COVID trial, five years ago, I would have thought you were from Mars if you told us that we could do that. So I think leveraging the momentum that we've seen from COVID, leveraging the m- momentum we're seeing from things like Cancer Moonshot, we're seeing from Cures 2.0, you know, what is the call to action that we can put into place as a community, whether it's through K- CRECO or in other ways, um, to bring all of those key stakeholders together and realize that momentum. And I think that's really the challenge and what we were hoping to start the conversation around today.
0: I, I thought the last talk on this one are really beautifully bookended, right? We, we heard Paraxel and Javaro working together to create both nonprofit opportunities to greater gift and, and the work they're doing. You know, Circuit and, uh, and our friends at Metadata on DCT with LabCorp on re- really being able to, to look at healthcare systems at scale and really see where the data is and where the opportunity is and then engage them in clinical trials. I think that's part of the solution. I think that, um, that uh, partnership ha- used to mean sort of, well, it would be great to get on this list of preferred sites right and that that's the that's the highest that we could ever aspire to be as partners and i think covid in particular having broken the uh, the paradigm of risk right i think if if we're talking to sponsors you know 6 years ago and you're in drug development or, or biotech risk is doing something new and d pharm is you know a testament to the idea of of trying to Push the, the signal through the noise of that idea, and then COVID quickly taught us all that actually risk is doing the same thing over and over again, and and de-risking situations mean having a variety of solutions available. So partnership has changed. I mean, and I think we have seen it in that last talk. I think we we've all sort of seen if you're if you're reading the uh, the uh, the press releases, which I do, from what my friends are up to. I think some really cool things have happened. Right, uh, Cerner and Algo collaborating. That's just very interesting. And it. it creates these new opportunities, that's a very different definition of partnering in clinical trials than has ever existed before, right? So that's that's the work of the last five years kind of being rapidly accelerated into this new paradigm. And so I would argue that that opportunity is available to the health systems in, in all kinds of new ways. I think that um, we're, we're watching, <laughs> uh, you know, talk about press releases. Everybody barely raised a billion dollars the other day. Like, uh, we are in this middle of this Um, transformation in chess it's the mid game right where where all of the pieces are now in play but we're not quite at the end state which is really exciting which means that everybody in this room candidly gets to shape what that end state looks like right and the ideal i think we all share which is greater equity greater access um, better patient experience um, and and a a smoother more efficient process for everybody Um, i still fundamentally believe i'll come back to it i think that that solving for why a doctor should say yes to research with any organization in this room is going to be the single greatest challenge that you face. And I would argue that, you know, speaking just of a practical solution, what seems to work on our end is viewing the physician experience as its own customer journey and really thinking about what value do they get out of this, not this trial, but out of participating in research as a program And that has to go to understanding the individual physician's goals, but it could be things like stacking key opinion leadership development, becoming a regional expert. Uh, It can become to promoting their voice and the opportunities we have, those kinds of things. That's, I think, the future of this, is new doctors, more thoughtfully constructed compositions of these investigators. But the real challenge is just sitting down and having that one-on-one conversation and explaining to them, here's why not this trial, but instead here's why this research idea is a good one for you and it goes a little bit back to the the last talk about if you're going to try to do serious community engagement that does not start when the trial starts that starts you know months and months before then about actually being useful before you need something from somebody
2: so I think one of the things that's important is we want to give you something that's practical because half of you in this room are going oh my god this is hard work and it is None of this is easy. It isn't. We all know this. And I think one of the things that's important is to take advantage of the bandwidth and take advantage of the assets that are currently in the industry that can help you. So, two of the fundamental things that we try to do with our partnerships and in our relationships with our sites and our sponsors is help raise awareness and visibility of the studies to those patients that are in your research site and those that live in the community beyond your front door and provide the assets that help articulate the purpose and the value of the study. Because at the end of the day, nobody's going to participate in a study if they don't understand why it's being done. So if some of you are going, oh my God, I've got to create all this. One of the things that Syscript did for us because of this conference is they put together a sheet that I'll hand out for you guys if you want. And all it's doing is describing all of the assets that are already currently in place for you. If you want to talk to a patient, who is who's cons- a parent, who is considering their child being in, in a study, that literature and those assets are done. If you want 2D animated videos that could, that describe what the purpose and value of research is, those assets are currently done. They've all been designed, and they can be versioned for your research site, for your study as well. They're a nonprofit organization. They're kind of like the good housekeeping seal of the industry, and they're they're literally, their entire mission statement is about raising awareness and participation. And guys, in, in two... In April of 2002, when I entered into clinical research, Time magazine had the cover of a woman in a cage, and they described clinical research participants as guinea pigs. And I thought, my wife was like, great great job with that transition there, Bob. And what we've got now is that we recognize them more as heroes. And, and I'll tell you, what, what has been so well-received, we're not hearing people referring to them as subjects. We're hearing them talking about as patients. And I think what has been also what has been so wonderful to see lately is so many patients being an active part of the decision-making process as sponsors are designing studies. And I think that's gone a long way as well.
0: Yeah, since we're sharing metaphors, I, I do like Medical Heroes. I think it's a great program. I always get a little concerned about, you know, does hero imply that they're taking on some sort of you know, incredible task and a lot of risk? The other one I, I like that I've heard is is uh, Kelly McKee from Metadata uses the phrase uh, test pilots, which I do like. There is risk involved in participating in anything, and it is heroic, but uh, but we need somebody to push the envelope, and that's what these patients are really doing for us. Oh.
1: Yeah, and I, I mentioned it earlier, um, but I'm going to borrow your uh, your clinical trials as a mechanism for care. I think helping patients understand that it's a mechanism, it's not, it's not something you have to do, but it's another advantage of seeing a physician who's involved in research. We can roll that into all sorts of conversations. Um, but reframing the conversation has been really important. And we've actually had patients say to us, please don't call us subjects, please don't call us participants, call us patients. And so that's been, that's been really wonderful to see happen as well. So knowing that we're about four minutes from lunch and we're gonna stay on time, we'll open it to some questions maybe. See if we have a couple before lunch.
2: Andrew, we, we know you don't want to come up to a microphone so it's coming to you.
1: <laughs> I, I was gonna run up, but it's okay. <laughs> um, Susan Wong from uh, Genentech. I'm actually also um, professionally trained as a physician assistant in emergency medicine over at LA County and UCLA. Uh, My question to you, Dr. Khan, has to do with um, perhaps consideration of increasing your narrative of physicians to clinicians, to include mid-level practitioners such as myself as a PA, uh, although I've been in the uh, pharmaceutical industry for 25-plus years, um, and also nurse practitioners to um, really educate them or actually bring them into the fold even more so than where they are right now in the clinical research knowledge arena and training.
0: I'm an advocate for both because what that would instantly do—it's such a great note. So the idea is that that we're concerned about our investigator base and how do we—and I had framed it as how do we bring more doctors into this—and that was a great addition, which is really could we also think about this in the context of why can't PAs and NPs be? Um, Uh, be in this conversation for who should be the investigator. One of the things that would instantly change if we made those changes is that we would achieve gender diversification and racial diversification of the investigator base almost instantly because those two teams uh, of of experts are actually far more representative of of the population. Medicine, people point out to me, well, you know, 55% of med school is, is now women, and, uh, and they'll ask, you know, how come every time I, I go see a surgeon it's, it's a guy? I go, yes, that will take 30 years for that bubble to move through. It's absolutely true. There are more women in med school now than there are men, and that's been true. I think it flipped over two years ago, and it, the trend is going to accelerate here. Um, but that bubble will take a good 20 years to be running all of these departments and stuff. It's still a very racially uh, homogenous group. It's predominantly white, right? And so, so how do we solve for that? The answer is right there. Is that if we allowed, and not even allowed, if we supported and promoted the idea of PAs and NPs, and believe me, if you've ever been in an electrophysiology lab and had a nurse anesthetist manage sedation for nine hours, they clearly can be investigators. You get three for one. You increase the number, total number of available investigators, you create a path to gender diversity in, in the investigator base and racial diversity in the investigator base with one decision. So, huge fan of that. Thank you for bringing that, uh, that, that point to the table.
1: Hi. Denise Snyder at Duke University. I'm the Associate Dean for Clinical Research, and I care a lot about the workforce and have spent a lot of time on this. So you're talking about a new crop of investigators coming up as we have some of these retirees move on and new models. How do we change the dialogue so that the clinical research coordinator is part of the team, not just a transactional employee? I mean, because that's what we're trying to build from a professional standpoint. So we are trying to increase the diversity, of course, of that workforce because they're the first people. A lot of times, and the physician might introduce the study, but the coordinator really has to spend some time going through the consent and all of that process. So, any thoughts about what are our opportunities there to give, you know, research coordinators an identity, much like nursing did many, many years ago, as being part of the healthcare
0: team? It's a it's a great point. I'll, I'll take a stab at this one, and, and and Bob and Laura, please, I'd love you to uh, um, throw in too. So, you know. I, I've been the investigator for 15 years in device and therapeutic trials, right? You know, it, it, like so many things in medicine, you, you get m- almost all of the credit unfairly, and, and occasionally when there's blame to go around, they also know where to find you. Um, <laughs> the coordinators are doing literally 90% of the work on any given day. I mean, they really are. I mean, 90% of it, right? Which is, which is actually not a bug. It's a feature. You have the, 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 um, the single best care provider Focusing on providing the care of that research experience so that's that is absolutely a feature of American healthcare um, The challenge is that it is, an, it is still very legacy paradigmed right like there is the if you if you know so I, I make this joke in technology all the time right healthcare lags ten years behind what the west or east Coast would consider technology, and then clinical trials lag ten years behind that right and so we 've kind of caught up through the pandemic I think a little bit the Archetypes inside research are very kind of old school, right? Their healthcare has flattened out, and you know, we have chief nursing officers and all the rest of that stuff putting the coordinator as a peer in the process would actually be better for the investigators. And if you, if you look at the IRO models, and, you know, them, you know, again, it's a relatively small group of people who all know each other well, that's actually how that model works act, uh, a lot more, is whereas the, the investigator is brought in and educated and supported, essentially, but is really not independent of the process or somehow driving the process to its logical conclusions. That It's not the be-all and end-all solution for all of these other things. We still need our existing site networks. We still need our, our academic Uh, powerhouses delivering kind of innovation but to support some of that to think about how could you push it out into more community health centers that that provide care and want to be in the research um, providing opportunity i do think those models where nurses have full-time capabilities in research and they're being brought in to empower new doctors has a chance to really democratize the relationship between the two of them
1: so, right. Bob. Ten
0: seconds or less. I was
1: going to say sixty seconds, and I would love to chat with you after. Yeah, <laughs>
2: that's I know a great question. It could take right. all of lunch. Absolutely. You're going to explode with this <laughs> topic alone, without question. Anytime I'm ever working with a sponsor who's who's struggling with enrollment, the very, very, very first thing they have to do is talk to their study coordinators. I don't care about the PIs. I say that with deep love and respect. No, that's true. But I, but I, but the study coordinator is, is literally where. Everything happens. They'll understand the burials. They'll understand the opportunities. They'll understand, I mean, without question, that is your first phone call if you're ever having any struggles with enrollment or recruitment.
0: Actually, if the, if the problem is not enough investigators unlocking the power of this, having stronger coordinator structures is actually a path to that. Doctors are likelier to say yes to doing it if they feel like they're not going to get burdened with all of the things they, they aren't good at and don't want to do.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we appreciate your uh, attendance and yeah, your patience this morning. Thank you. Thank
0: you, Laura. I appreciate great it, guys. Dr.
1: Khan oh. and um, Bob. Thank you.
0: Yeah. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Craco Conference, our editorials, podcasts, and webinars, please visit cracoevent.com. Thank you.